Hello and welcome to the Keep Northern Ireland Beautiful podcast. In this episode, we're going to go through the climate emergency. What are the big issues about it? How can we properly tackle it? What can the environment sector do to keep this as a big issue? And to go through this, uh, this man will need no introduction to all of the environmentalists out there. Professor John Barry from Queen's University, who has been a lifelong activist in the in the pursuit of uh, climate uh, justice and climate change issues. John, you're very, very welcome to the Keep Northern Beautiful podcast. Thank you, Dave, for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> you're very welcome. John, I just want to jump right in. So obviously, uh, climate the climate emergency has been a huge topic of debate for the last number of years. Um, what have you made of the debate, how it's progressed, particularly over the last five years or so, and where we are today? Well, first of all, it's important to connect the climate and the ecological emergency. It's what I call the planetary crisis that we're facing. So the one that's occupied most public debate and discussion is the climate emergency. You know, it's Greta Thunberg. It's what Sir David Attenborough has been doing, the the young people striking. And that's uh, absolutely an essential part of it. But I wouldn't like to forget about the other, the biodiversity crisis that we're now going through the sixth great mass extinction event on the planet and on the one hand, uh, it's no uh, you know, issue to be debated. The climate and the planetary crisis is now much further up the political agenda than it's ever been in my 30 odd years as an academic and an activist. You know, we have the declarations of climate and ecological emergencies in Westminster, in the Dahl, uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly, uh, um, numerous councils in Northern Ireland and elsewhere. So on the rhetoric side, on the on the media side, or even you could say the public consciousness side, um, people are now more aware of it. They are taking it more more seriously. But here's my fear, and I'm sure we can get into this. It's one thing declaring an emergency. But how, for example, if you're listening to this podcast in Belfast or Ballymena or Banbridge, how would you know that the Northern Ireland Assembly has declared an emergency Last year, last February was when the, uh, the the Assembly declared a climate and ecological emergency. But our lives hasn't changed. I mean, my view, and again, I'll just plant this as something we may return to, um, is that the, the, the pandemic is what an emergency looks like. The responses by governments, by, you know, corporations, by businesses, by that's what an emergency looks like. And yet what we're, we're not seeing that level of determined action. And of course, the, how horrible the pandemic is. The climate and planetary crisis is going to be imme- immeasurably worse in the decades ahead. Yeah, and interesting, John, because you you bring that up. Obviously, during the pandemic, uh, as we're nearly a year from it, uh, one of the things that came out of it was obviously the environmental aspect of it. For example, we, we all saw the clear rivers in Venice. We all saw, for example, smog uh, lifting away from cities and clear streets. And people were talking about, you know, even in Belfast, we had great chats about pedestrianisation. We had great chats about reclaiming public space, our town centres for, for footfall. I mean, has that really been sustained in the over the last 12 months or have we seen it kind of rise up the agenda and then quickly fall back down again? I, I would say it's kind of a, half, a glass half full at this stage. There is an opportunity absolutely for us to, you know, the language being used is build back better. So that as we come out of the pandemic, we, in a sense, don't want, want we don't want to go back to normal because normal was the problem. Normal was unsustainable. It was, uh, you know, not benefiting everybody. And so therefore we need to resist that idea, um, normal and understandable as it is to, you know, to return to normal. And, we, and, and here's how crazy our society on a whole has become. It's taken a global pandemic to give the earth a breather. 
you know, with the reduction in international air travel, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the, the waterways of Venice no longer being as polluted because there's no more or there's not the great influx of tourists. Even Belfast air quality improved immeasurably as we weren't driving so much and so on. But of course, the danger is that already you can see car traffic starting to ramp back up. People are afraid of using public transportation because of the, the virus. So you say at the very time we need people to make you know the shift from their car to public transportation, people don't feel safe because of the virus. But certainly I can see a lot of positives. I mean, even at the level of people reconnecting with nature, you know, people particularly during the, the first lockdown where the weather was good as well, people who, you know, living near the, um, a, a, you know, a beach or a, or a park and so on. So there's lots of positives, but the danger is, of course, that I think the default position, both by states, by businesses, and let's be honest, most citizens, is to go back to the way things were. I think that would be a grave mistake, and therefore it is for the likes of the environmental movement to be pushing for a, a green recovery and again, that idea of not going back to normal, that we want to lay down, the, you know, a new modal, you know, system so that we're more active travel, you know, fair play to Minister uh, Nicola Mallon, as I understand it, she's in a, a trench warfare with her senior uh, officials trying to, you know, get us away from our, ba- our car uh, dependency in Belfast and, and beyond. This is the time now to make these changes. But of course, it's going to take political pressure. There is no app for the change that we're talking about. And always in life, made immeasurably more complex by our own unique political circumstance here. It's going to take a combination of people power, mobilisation, groups in the environment sector, linking up, for example, the trade union movement, for example, and saying that as we build out of this recovery, let's not have a growth led. Let's have, it's about jobs. It's about the fact that how can we tackle the, uh, the reality that 42%, if you look on the department of communities website 42 percent of our community in northern ireland is living in fuel poverty now that means people are are, uh, hungry because they're choosing between heating and eating their lives are blighted because of having to spend more than 10 percent of their income so the link between environment and trade unions here just to finish as an example of this building back better if we could retrofit our homes in other words you know, get people out of unemployment, get them to be, you know, insulating houses in in the housing executive sector or the private rental sector or whatever. This creates local jobs. It keeps more money in the local community. It keeps people safe and warm where they can learn and have good lives. And guess what? As a Brucey bonus, it reduces our greenhouse gas emissions. That's the type of policy we need to see. Now, and sadly, I don't see any sign of that. In my view, a simple policy solution to deal with lots of problems we're not seeing that as of yet from our executive. Yeah, and you just you 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 kind of um, linked on to my next question there. So you were talking about obviously compare and contrast the the um, the response of the pandemic. I mean, if you ever thought you would um, you would see the governmental responses that we saw, I mean, they were they were pretty substantive. In terms of declaring that emergency, what would you like to see from the executive as a whole in terms of actually properly tackling? Uh, the climate emergency. What 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 specifics do you think there could be? Okay, let's start at the more symbolic visual communication end. That that image now it's gone off our our consciousness and in the media. But the early part of the pandemic, we were all used to flattening the curve. So the whole idea was that we weren't to overwhelm our healthcare system. So we had to flatten out the peak of the virus and so on. That's why we're social distancing, working from home, and so on. 
why don't we take that visual representation and have the government promoting on a, on a weekly basis bending the curve down and the curve i'm talking about here is our greenhouse gas emissions so that the public can begin to see oh that's why we're having policies about the modal shift from the car it's to help us reduce greenhouse gas emissions i think there's there's a, a read across from the communication in the pandemic on that issue to how we should perhaps engage with our communities and citizens around reducing our greenhouse gas emissions i think if i was to advise the northern ireland executive is basically to say, well, if it is an emergency, so the Northern Ireland Assembly has declared an emergency, what does that actually mean? If it's not just bullshit and, and rhetoric and, you know, uh, cheap media coverage for, for a day or so, what does that actually mean? I think it means things like having an honest conversation with our farmers to say, listen, our current food production system is unsustainable. We simply cannot continue with a heavy-based, uh, you know, land-fed, or sorry, grass-fed, beef-heavy, dairy uh, sector. It's clear, the evidence is there, that um, the, the land use in Northern Ireland is a net creator of carbon emissions, where in most parts of Europe, the land and forest are a net sequesterer. In other words, it sucks out carbon and so on. In Northern Ireland, it's the opposite. So there's a that's a difficult conversation. We need to get alongside our farmers to try and co-create solutions with them. So that's a job for DERA, and it's a job for the executive as a whole. That's And that is going to be unique to Northern Ireland. I actually say think the, the, the policy proposal I put out to you a, a, a few moments ago of retrofitting our homes, what's not to like about this? That is, it, it's screamingly obvious that that's the policy option we should do, certainly for Belfast and beyond. And the reason why I say that, and I have to declare my, my uh, skin in the game here, I co-chaired the Belfast Climate Commission and we produced a report in November which basically profiled the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions for Northern, or sorry, for Belfast and mapped out the types of policies you might need to get to net zero by 2050. And in our housing sector, that is the obvious. It, it, the ha- domestic housing uh, of heating, for the most part, is our biggest carbon impact in Belfast. So why not address that issue? And I think the housing retrofit uh, of a green new deal, if you want to call it that. To me, it's better calling it a green jobs recovery. I don't even like that language of the green new deal. It's a very American-centric concept. Um, I would much rather talk about green jobs, keeping people safe and warm in their homes. They have more disposable income to spend in the local economy. And yet, again, I, I don't see any move um, of that simple idea amongst our executives. So that's what I would suggest. A discussion with the farming sector about uh, changing our food system, I think a, a, a word that may not be familiar to most of your listeners is agroecology. To me, that's the future of farming in terms of yeah. sustainable farming. But then to go back like a broken record, housing retrofit, this is the policy solution that we need for Belfast in particular. Okay. And you, so, so obviously part, part and parcel of that um, that you've just spoken about is obviously a dramatic shift. You know, we can't really nickel and dime our way out of this because the tendency for for I mean, anywhere if you look around the world where politicians have tried to introduce things like carbon taxes they become very quickly unpopular policies so it, there's no real kind of nickel and dime way to get out of this it has to be it has to be um it has to be strong it has to be new and it really just has to be a total sea change in the way we view this no yeah that ambition is is absolutely david what what we need here we are facing an existential crisis that our species has never faced before we are literally rivet popping the life supporting systems of the planet and calling it progress we are heating up the earth 
so that it's it's going into these more um, you know radical extreme weather events. I mean, it's a it's with a bit of irony uh, that, that at the time we're talking, Texas is undergoing some severe problems because there you have a very oil dependent state. It's also one part of the problem. What's happening in Texas now is that it completely separated from the federal electricity supply system. You know, being typical Texas and you, know, you call it neoliberal or right wing. But that, that's an example of how even very powerful rich countries can be impacted quite significantly by the, the, the severe weather events that we're, we're now facing. So this is about system change. It's about large changes in our transportation, our food, our housing system, and so on. And we have to get real about the ambition, and it's going to be costly. And that's where even within Northern Ireland, which is the context we're talking about, we have to start looking at where are the sources of capital and finance that can be used to upgrade our energy system, our electricity system, uh, how to change our transportation system to the, to the level that it needs to. Now, there are limits, obviously, to the fiscal competency um, of the executive. What we can see about a bond issue, something that's never been really tried in Northern Ireland, can we see that the uh, 11 councils plus the executive can come together, perhaps with some other councils and administrations in the UK, uh, about issuing green bonds? It's quite common even in America for cities to issue bonds to help raise the capital for various projects. What about the credit union movement? Again, a, a uniquely Irish success story in terms of its origins in Derry and, 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 and hat tip to uh, John Hume in terms of being instrumental in that. The credit union movement on the island of Ireland has millions in investable capital. Now, there are certain legal rules about what it can do, so they need to change. And also then finally, in the private sector, there is a need and there is there is investable funds looking for uh, investable projects. So there, whether it's the central government with local government, whether it's innovative uh, forms of finance in the credit union movement, or indeed uh, in, in the private sector, these are the types of things that the executive should now be trying to, you know, coordinate to find out, okay, where do we need to fund first? Where do we need to invest? Because this is about a step change in our ways of life. This is not, as you say, nickel and dime. This is not policy reform. This is systemic changes in every part of our lives. And just to give people a heads up, what I'm talking about is that in, in the future, we are looking at the almost complete electrification of our lives. From heating to transportation to a lot of uh, issues we take for granted now, we are looking at the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. They aren't going to disappear overnight, but it is about signaling to the market, to our citizens and so on, that in the decades ahead, we are moving away from what we now think of, of, of our food system, our transportation system. And, and sadly, I'm not saying any of that level of ambition, because I'm talking about a better world a better economy, more resilient, where we're dependent upon our locally produced renewable energy resources, where we're providing non-outsourceable green jobs and a low-carbon economy. So this is not about a, a negative betrayal. And I think you're right, though, David, to point out the dangers of some policy options, such as carbon taxes, which are very regressive. Uh, in fact, I would connect, if I had longer with you, the Gilets jaunes movement in France of the yellow vests who rose yeah. up against Macron, that was largely in part to do with the, uh, the imposition of a carbon tax on diesel, which is going to disproportionately affect those on low income. And that's why I think carbon taxes are not the way forward. This has to be about other forms of policy options that people can see the benefit of the green transition. And it's not something sacrificial or it's going to be regressive in making their lives worse. 
And in terms of, obviously, there'll be some people listening to this. Obviously, this this podcast being hosted by a body in the environment sector. And, and John, I know you've been out there as well. What can, as a sector, um, uh, locally, and also not, not, not just in Northern Ireland, because the environment is a global, it's, it's a global issue. What can envi- the environment sector, not just in Northern Ireland, but around the world, what can they do? to really press and get governments moving ahead with some of the policy developed. So, for example, you're looking at things like deposit return schemes. You're looking at things, you know, around green energy and incentivizing it more and obviously getting us to to, to use better uh, travel habits. Well, what, what, can, what can the environment sector do there? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, I stop individualizing <coughs> responses. The, you know, the, the, the appropriate response <coughs> to what we're challenging here is not individual um you know behavioral change recycle more and so on don't get me wrong i do those things but they are singularly inappropriate given the scale and the urgency of what's needed we need more systemic changes to for the environmental movement to say listen we need finance to serve the real economy in making this decarbonization government is going to have to do that we're not talking about modest policy reforms We are talking about systemic changes in, as I say, food, transportation, heating, and so on. And I think the other aspect the environmental movement can and should do is to reverse its decades-long kind of negative betrayal. You know, don't get me wrong, I love science. Science tells us what's going on in the world. But too often, a science-based analysis here, which is not very pleasant, if you read the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the Committee on Climate Change report in the UK, We're going in all the wrong directions and it can be very depressing. And I think too often the environmental movement naively thinks more science and information is going to automatically connect and make the changes necessary. So as well as the environmental movement tackling government to make systemic changes like a just transition or if you want to call it a Green New Deal or whatever, you you know, the particular, you know, state-backed green transition program you want to talk about, We also need the environmental movement to present to citizens, this is a positive vision of a better society. I mean, there's a big issue of communication because often environmentalists, we're we're like the, the, you know, um, we're often as welcome as a fart in a spacesuit or we're, you know, like the teetotaler at the party telling, oh, don't be eating red meat, don't be flying and so on. And that negative um, portrayal just gets people's backs up. They automatically say, you know, I'm not interested in this. So my view is to present the green transition as positive, as making for a better society where people can have energy, uh, where we can have jobs and so on. So it's that job-rich potential of of a different type of economy that I want to portray. And effectively, just to finish, what the environmental movement needs to do, both in lobbying government and businesses and our communities, is to present the vision of the future they want to bring into being as something like a, a nice holiday resort that you want to get to, something attractive. Has to be obviously it has to be realistic, but the reality is I think too much a science-based argument puts people off. It's very hard to connect the story. And as you know, David, as a political commentator of, of long standing, what we need to connect with is a story. You ask people, what is the story of the climate crisis? Yeah. And they don't get it. We need to connect that positive transition. In the same way that we saw things like, for example, the creation of the welfare state, that's the type of changes that our societies now need. And are you, in terms of that there, because you, you've raised a really interesting point there about we don't just need kind of a climate revolution, we need kind of a, a communications revolution and know how that's uh, put out there as well. So just in our final few minutes, in terms of what that message could be, you've talked about the hope and the optimism there. 
Um, what would you say if if I was to give you a soapbox? Well, I was effectively giving you a soapbox here, but, uh, <laughs> but 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 if we were able to give you two minutes and stand up there, what 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 would be your pitch to the person maybe walking down Royal Avenue who maybe isn't thinking about this? What would be what would be the pitch you would give? I would say, are you concerned about the next generation, your kids and your grandkids, if you're lucky enough to um, to have those? The world that's now being created is going to be immeasurably more difficult. It's going to be replete with a lot of unnecessary suffering for those who are yet to be born or those who are young. So that moral obligation, I think, is an important issue. We're already seeing the impacts now of climate breakdown, even in our own societies. You know, extreme events, storm surge already happening in Northern Ireland. We've seen the terrible flooding that happened over in Derry, Straban a few years ago. So it's not as if the climate crisis is only in the future or it's happening somewhere else in another part of the world. And I think what people are mobilised by is a sense of fairness and justice. And what's happening at the minute is profoundly unjust to the poorest in our communities, to the future who are disenfranchised. I mean, that's what makes me so uh, uh, you know, uh, admiring of the young people striking, is they don't have a vote, but they have a voice. Why We should feel ashamed. And I have to say there's a bit of shame I felt when those movements started, even as an activist of, of you know, many decades, to say, why is it taking young people to come out and shame our generation into doing the right thing. So in my view, it's about a sense of justice, of fairness for those in the future, that you know, our world can be you know, one in which everybody's needs can be, can be met. We can do it in a safe, sustainable manner, and, and, you know, and, and that we don't have to have this negative, sacrificial kind of narrative around the climate. But I'd also finally say to people, why is it it's easier for most people in the world today, certainly in the Western world, to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism? Because I'm fairly unapologetic that a current, our current capitalist system based upon globalization and GDP growth and consumption and so on, that is un, unsustainable. We cannot continue that. I think most people, when you sit down, you explain it to them, they can get it. They may reject the because of the ideological resonances of capitalism. But I do think with ask people, why is it? that it literally is more believable for people to have these apocalyptic visions of the future. And we can't say, well, can we not change the economic system so that's more sustainable, more just, less exploitative of people and planet? So for me, is about, that's how I would make that pitch, probably over the two minutes on my sustainably produced you know, soapbox. But it is about saying that sense of injustice that we currently exist and injustice and unsustainability go together. Uh, they always, if something is cheap, folks, in a, in a, a supermarket... It's cheap for a reason. Either people are not being paid a decent wage or the planet has been exploited in some way. That, it, that has to end. That globalised system whereby we're not seeing the long chains of commodity production, whereby it's people in other parts of the global south that are suffering the horrendous health and environmental impacts of our consumer choices. That's a difficult one to deal with, but we have to address it because the, the facts are there. And we can create a different world, but that's going, to, that's going to require political struggle. It's going to require reimagining what the future might look like. And I would say, finally, in Northern Ireland, there is a connection between making peace with each other and peace with the planet. That there is something around, is this not something in tackling the planetary crisis that transcends the usual shite that we have here that passes for for politics, that this is an opportunity to come together, whether it's on an all-island basis, a shared island, that's one way, or it's within Northern Ireland. But it's something that I think, you know, again, whether you're Catholic, Protestant or the centre, the seas don't give a shite. They're going to rise. 
the, the weather is going to be more extreme. So it's just not something that we can actually begin to see that even for Northern Ireland, it's always suffered from this. And you well know it, David. It's like, you know, that phrase in the Bible, without vision, the people perish. And that's been our problem on this island for the last hundred years. There's been no shared vision. Well, I'm not saying that what I'm suggesting is the solution, but I do think it's part of seeing how now we begin to weave a narrative of making, you know, tackling the planetary crisis locally as part of perhaps beginning to build a different type of politics that's looking to the future rather than backwards. Because I always say in Northern Ireland, we march into the future looking backwards. Can we not just turn around now and face some of these big issues that I've outlined? They are challenging, but we do have the solutions and they can create the basis for a future sustainable prosperity for this part of Ireland or the island as a whole. Okay, well, that was way longer than two minutes, uh, John, but John, a very interesting analysis and very interesting thoughts. And again, there's just so much um, we could uh, go through. But John, I really appreciate you giving your time to talk to us today on the Keep Northern Ireland Beautiful podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, David, and take care, everybody out there. Wash your hands and socially distance from neoliberalism. Thank you very much for listening to the Keep Northern Iron Beautiful podcast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your quality podcasts. Thank you very much for listening.